The following is a conversation with Professor Vincent Rashkumar, who is engaged in clinical, epidemiological, and laboratory research in myeloma and related disorders from the Mayo Clinic USA. Dr. Rashkumar served as the principal investigator on several clinical trials for the treatment of multiple myeloma. In addition to myeloma, we cover a range of conversation topics, including the COVID-19 pandemic, Dr. Rajakuma's social media influence and advice for trainees in many different settings and starting out in research. And now enjoy this conversation with Professor Vincent Rashkumar. Thank you for your, for your time on Sunday morning. Thank you very oh, much. <laughs> and um, maybe just for a start, uh, we wanted to kind of introduce you and already uh, start with a tough question. So you work um, on multiple myeloma, which has seen like tremendous uh, and incredible improvements in outcome, but also in disease control. Uh, you engage public publicly for good signs, uh, for instance, now, especially in the pandemic. Um, and you spoke out uh, about fin financial burden of current uh, drugs. And for a start, Do you think um, that we live now in the best of possible worlds? And if not, what would you do about it? Uh, with regards to multiple myeloma? With, with about to everything, to your work, to your life, how, how do you see the world? Do, do you think it's, it's good how it's, how it's playing out at the moment or? Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to talk to you both. Um, You know, if it hadn't been for the pandemic, I would say that this is a great time. Um, we are making so much progress, not just in the cancer that I work with, multiple myeloma, but also a variety of human diseases. Um, that's based on the advances in um, drug, new drugs, advances in science and genetics, understanding of biology and mechanisms. Um, and I think to some extent, when COVID happened, we have all taken a step back. Uh, the way we do things has changed. Um, we've lost so many lives around the world. Um, so many people have become um, burdened with morbidities. So it's hard at this point to feel like, okay, we are in a really good place. Um, but I hope that once COVID is behind us, um, that some of the uh, you know adjustments that we made because of COVID will go on to help us further in how we take care of cancer patients. Great. And I think for me, coming from like the perspective of a pediatric hematologist, I've not really had to think about myeloma since, well, since last October when I did my final um, board exams and things. But how would you kind of summarize to someone not really working in the myeloma field, what's been achieved um, with progress in the disease over the last few years? And since you initially started working on it? So, you know, um, I didn't have any particular fondness for multiple myeloma as a medical student uh, or as a resident. It was just one of, you know, any number of cancers. But then when I uh, came to the Mayo Clinic for my fellowship training, um, this was a place that was well known for multiple myeloma because of Dr. Kyle and Dr. Greif and others. And so naturally, as I was doing fellowship, I was, I became very interested in the disease and uh, started to do my research um, in that field. Since that time, which would be like, you know, 1995, 96 onwards till now, um, we've had, um, we've made dramatic progress. And I would say probably more than any other cancer uh, with the exception of CML. Um, in terms of uh, survival as a metric, um, patients used to have a median survival of two to three years when I started in the field. And now I've seen it grow uh, where most patients can expect to live uh, six, seven years or longer. And that has come about due to our understanding in biology, our understanding of risk stratification, uh, diagnostic abilities, and then of course, new drugs. Um, Several of them uh, have come about since 99. We went from 1950 to 99, 
with probably only melphalan steroids. And then from 99 onwards, um, a huge number of drugs which have collectively improved the outcome of myeloma patients. So that's been the main progress. And right now, all of us are seriously thinking about, is it possible to cure the disease with the available tools, provided we use them in the best method possible? Or do we still need some extra tools and extra drugs um, to, to, to make it realistic that we can cure this disease? And for me, cure means cure. You know, you give treatment, you stop treatment, and then the disease never comes back. So that's what we're working on. And uh, immunotherapy advances uh, are certainly the most promising right now. And maybe for a trainee, because Claire and me and all our committee members are, are trainees, young students, um, maybe just for us to kind of get a feeling for it. When you you start, you thought uh, you said you started in 1995, something about it, and that's not 26 years ago. Um, what do you feel when you now see a myeloma patient in comparison to to that period when you said that the the life expectancy was was much lower? Um, Do you, do you communicate completely differently to, to the patients? What, what do you feel like when you look back to the last like 25, 26 years? Yeah, I, it's totally different. I mean, the way we speak to patients now is different. And that comes from experience as well as uh, what we think might happen in the future. So the way I talk to patients right now is even the survival that they read about in books and journal articles is really dependent on advances that were made um, years ago. And so the current advances and how much they affect outcome, I'm talking about in the last two, three years and how much they affect outcome for patients diagnosed in 21, uh, we don't know because it could be much better than what they read in books. And so I convey a sense of optimism without um, over, overstating it, without being uh, dishonest about it. The fact is that patients today require year after year, month after month of therapy. And that's not something we do for large cell lymphoma or the Hodgkin's disease. So in that sense, I convey to them that we're still battling a disease that's unpredictable, that's incurable, and requires continuous therapy and those are things that we want to change and you want to make sure that you convey the optimism uh, convey the fact that they can probably live for many many years the fact that the treatments are not that hard on them unlike other cancer chemotherapy but at the same time that that we need we need to make more progress and we're continuously working on such things I think I was always struck by how many trials were going on in that myeloma field really and the amount of money that drug companies would invest into new myeloma treatments, possibly at the ex expense of other things sometimes. I mean, and here in the UK, for example, land maintenance only became available through the NHS in March this year. So it almost seems like, although we knew there were better treatments available, our patients here weren't able to access them because of the different funding and things in different health systems in different countries. Do you think there's a gap or would you say there's a gap between reality and trials? And if so, how do you think that moving forward, this might be overcome? Oh, I mean, excellent question. You, you, your question has like three important points that I want to make. Number one is pharmaceutical companies are very much interested in investing in myeloma. Uh, and I think it's for two reasons. One is it's become a targetable drug, a disease in the sense that it seems amenable to therapy, unlike, say, certain cancers where we haven't made progress for so long. And there's a very easy metric that they can follow without biopsying or imaging patients over and over again because we have a monoclonal protein that can be measured. So even though myeloma is only 1% of all cancers, the fact that it's treatable and that it has a biomarker that can be measured in the peripheral blood very easily month after month to, to know whether your drug's working or not has made it a very good field to invest in for drug companies because they could make it a reality, whatever drugs they have in their pipeline. The second problem is that um, patients always read outcomes that we publish in clinical trials and doctors advertise those numbers 
And that's not reality because um, clinical trial patients are highly selected and patients with poor, poor performance status, performance status three and four, are typically excluded from clinical trials. Patients with comorbidities are excluded. Those actually have a greater impact on survival than all of the risk stratification and the genomics that we do. So we have to be careful that, you know, that the, 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 the outcomes may not be as rosy as we present them in clinical trials for certain patients. And that's something that uh, we are aware of. And thirdly, a lot of it is conditioned on access. And if you don't have access because of regulatory issues or because of cost, then all these advances are only available to wealthy patients living in wealthy countries. And then um, the vast majority of uh, the world does not have access to these drugs. I mean, even now, uh, a huge number of countries in South America, in Africa, uh, even in Europe may not have access to the type of maintenance therapy that we do year after year, month after month, um, may not have access to all of the immunotherapy drugs that we use. So there's a lot of problems. Some of it is due to just regulatory issues um, where the type of trials that are needed for approval haven't been done in many countries or countries require certain studies to be done in their own populations. But a lot of it is because of cost and cost is a big barrier to access. Um, I have been a very much, uh, I've been a proponent of lower cost of prescription drugs, not just cancer drugs, not just myeloma drugs, but everything from insulin and beyond because access due to cost issues is something really, very, very sad. And we need to make sure that we have, um, you know, uh, uh, effective drugs that are easily available to our patients. I don't really find fault with countries uh, in Europe or the UK or Canada, which have promised all their citizens good health care and cannot deliver it because, you know, drugs, if, if they buy all the drugs at the same price that drug companies want, then they cannot meet all their demands because it's more than what national budgets would allow. So we have to have a balance, and uh, and I think I've been arguing very much for um, the type of negotiations you have to happen in the U.S. as well for prescription drug prices, because then it makes it easier for all countries to negotiate. Um, if the U.S. doesn't need negotiations, then it puts all, all of the other countries at a disadvantage when you're trying to negotiate. And you alluded to to designing clinical trials and in an evolving field like my multiple myeloma, there is also the question of how the control arm evolves over time. Because as we all know that the ideal trial is a randomized control trial. And this depends also on the performance of the control. What is the control? Um, in the last years, maybe the control arm had performed much, much better than 10, 15 years ago. Um, what do you think is the role of, of such control arms now in, in multiple, multiple myeloma? And do you think that uh, there should be a more focus on control arms, maybe even more regulation on control arms in multiple myeloma? You know, that's a very, very good question. It's going to take a whole podcast almost to get into that um, because I see the concerns that many people raise um, but since, you know, we're talking to trainees, the first thing that trainees should be aware of is that, you know, designing and running a clinical trial is very different from reading about a trial or trying to criticize a trial. Um, there are huge barriers. If you look at who has the money to run a randomized controlled trial, very few people do, particularly to regulatory standards. Very few drugs that can be approved by a publicly funded trial mechanism or a philanthropic funded mechanism for a regulatory trial, because that involves not just audits, but actually prospective verification of sites to make sure everything is done correctly and data to be collected in that level. So almost all of these trials are funded by pharmaceutical companies. And if you're a pharmaceutical company, um, that is investing in a new drug, then you hold all the cards. You're not going to put down your money in and your drug that you're trying to take to the market 
at the whims of other people who have all kinds of other interests. So, you know, it's something we have to be realistic about. If you want the perfect control arm, do you have the money to fund such a trial? If not, we have to go with what the companies allow us to do. So regulators then look at whether or not the trial was correctly done. The second point to make is in, in oncology, particularly in an incurable malignancy like multiple myeloma or something like that, if you have a drug A and you show that it's better than nothing, and the worst control arm would be nothing, right? But if you have a drug A that is better than nothing, and it's safer and more effective than nothing, then having it available for your patients is a good thing. Because if you have five such drugs, at least they will compete on price. Doctors are not going to use drugs that don't work. So um, ultimately, the practice would, would dictate what happens and you've seen it with borinostat with panobinostat with selenex uh, or i mean we're not rushing to use these drugs just because they are approved for myeloma even elotuzumab uh, so the market will decide practicing physicians will be will decide so i'm not as worried about the control arm for getting a drug onto the market because that there is a price to pay by delaying it if you want the perfect trial for palmolidomide it would have taken five more years for anyone to have access to it. So then, or daratumumab. Um, so then you have to be willing to say, as long as they show that the drug works and it actually prolongs life or prolongs progression-free survival, then it's okay to be on the market. The problem comes with control arms where the control arm is quite bad for the purpose that we're using the drug for. So for frontline therapy, for maintenance therapy, uh, to change practice, you need a different type of control arm than what you need to show that an X, that one drug works in the field. So then it gets into the weeds for like, you know, what kind of trial is needed to change practice versus what kind of trial is needed for getting a drug on the market. And that was a really tremendously complex answer. And, and you, it's, I completely agree that, um, specifically for trainees uh, you first need to understand what the problem is or what the reality is and maybe um, just to you, you started it but maybe try to focus it a bit more on what do you think what do you would give an advice to trainees to make sense of all the data that's coming out what what would you say to a trainee who starts to read like first trials and myeloma and maybe starts with a New England paper or what, what do you think, how should a trainee approach this influx of information every day about this disease? So, you know, medicine, uh, I will tell you my own perspective, uh, having gone through the same process that all of our trainees have gone through. Um, it's, I am really a firm believer in history and, and being deep. Um, so medicines become so complex that during your residency, it is not possible now to, to read up about all of the diseases or most of the big diseases. Um, but when you're a trainee, then all of the big hematologic malignancies, like, you know, multiple myeloma, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, Hodgkin's, people have to get into real depth in reading what happened in the field. So having a good historical perspective, how are we here where we are right now? And what has happened? Only when you understand that, can you then say, how can we improve on something? So for example, if I have to walk you through it, most of us use bortezomib index for the newly diagnosed patients. A trainee needs to understand where did we, how did we get to bortezomib index? Um, how did we go from melphalan prednisone from 1950s to botezomib index in 2021. And getting through the historical perspective that you know they did 26 randomized trials before they found something could improve on melphalan prednisone. And that was melphalan prednisone plus thalidomide or melphalan prednisone plus botezomib. And then the question was melphalan is cytotoxic, can we change it? And then changing um, the steroid dose and, and so on, one by one, led to the standard and then the question is how do i improve on this how do i 
make bortezomib lendex into something else because even that's not curing patients. So we have to continuously improve it. And there you have a choice. Do I say improvement only when improvement actually happens, which could be 20 years from now? Or am I willing to take certain risks? And then you, 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 you design your trials accordingly in terms of how much risk are you willing to take for a type 1 error, where you will conclude something is better when it's actually not. How much risk are you willing to take? Because if you, don't, if you want to be perfect, you might not have the answer for 10 years, 15 years. Because you start a 2021 20, a newly diagnosed myeloma trial, it'll take 10 years before you find an overall survival improvement. Are we willing to wait till 2031 before we say, I'll change BRD to something else? And so those risks have to be taken into account. What type two errors are you willing to uh, think? And there we took it. And this is the same thing that happened with smoldering multiple myeloma, uh, where we are recommending early therapy with just lenalidomide or Lendex for high-risk smoldering myeloma patients. These are people who have a two-year time to progression. I'm not saying I'm right. That's the position I have taken. There are some who say, no, no, you should just do observation alone until you show survival is better. And then there are other people who say, no, you should be treating it like myeloma. Why treat it mildly? And you're caught between these two uh, philosophies, and you're in the, some middle lane philosophy. And I have to ask myself, okay, if I have to do a trial that shows some, you know, that treatment's better than nothing, the LEN DEX, the LEN versus no treatment trial that was started in 2006, and we are in 2021, has only six deaths so far. Okay, so I cannot show a survival improvement. But we have shown a 90% decrease in skeletal events, crab features, renal failure, and so on. The trial we have designed right now that's ongoing, which is Lendex versus Dara Lendex, is, is powered and primary endpoint of overall survival of 11 versus 22 years. Okay, I'm in 2021. The trial is only one third accrued. That means I will be retired, I'll be 75 plus before. That survival improvement happens. So the question is, am I going to say no one with smoldering myeloma gets triplets or anything until 2035? Or am I going to say, what kind of type 1 error will I be willing to take? What kind of improvement will I, willing, will I be willing to take that is a reasonable call that I'll probably be right eventually? Those are the things that trainees will have to look at for every call we make, whether it's relapse myeloma, whether it's maintenance, whether it's smoldering, newly diagnosed myeloma, and do it for themselves. And I have written a paper that if people want, can they can pull up and read. It's, it's a conflict between a rationale-based approach where we've seen with COVID. If it's a question of masks, you know, I'm an ardent evidence-based medicine proponent but I don't need evidence to say everybody wears a mask. I don't need randomized controlled trials because the intervention is not risky. If I'm right, lives saved. If I'm wrong, so what if you wore a mask? Mm -hmm. And so then we have adopted that. On the other hand, if you're going to talk about a vaccine, well, now you need randomized controlled trials before you'll start putting asymptomatic patients with an mRNA shot. So you have to weigh every decision you make for a trial or for an individual patient with the same lens. What is the chance of a type 1 error? What is the chance for a type 1 error? Which is of greater consequence? Do I dare not miss an intervention that works and conclude it doesn't? Or do I dare not say something works when it actually doesn't? And so that call has to be made and it has to be made repeatedly and it's very difficult to make it by just reading a New England Journal paper. You have to have the historical background. How did we come? What are the consequences of the call? And then make that call, whether it's a trial and you're trying to decide what's the best endpoint, whether you're reading a trial and deciding if this endpoint is enough for you to change practice or the patient in front of you. Uh, that's, a, that's a great point. I, I completely agree. Um, and what would you say when, um... When you look at 
the current standpoint in myeloma, what do you think is uh, are the current blind spots in the disease? What do you think we don't understand at the moment? What would you say we need to dig deeper into it? Oh, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of stuff that we need to address. Okay, um, what we have accomplished, uh, you know, that I have been passionate about is waiting for end organ damage before you start treatment is something unique for myeloma because we have many many cancers but we don't have any cancer where we define something as a malignant versus non-malignant only based on clinical features you have to have you know whether you take breast cancer or colon cancer or you know large cell lymphoma it's 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 a pathologist who makes the call whereas in myeloma we had a situation where you could have 80 percent plasma cells in the bone marrow but you didn't have lytic lesions, well, that's called smoldering myeloma, or you know, you don't have crab features, that's called smoldering myeloma. So the paradigm we've changed was that we don't need to wait for end organ damage. We've changed paradigms with regards to early therapy for high-risk smoldering myeloma, but there's a lot more we need to change. And some of the things that I am focused on are, I don't think it's one disease. It's probably six or seven different diseases that is collectively called myeloma and that we need to really define the disease with genetic features and cytogenetics. I say, for example, the 414 myeloma is as different from 1114 myeloma as CLL is from mantle cell lymphoma. But yet we call CLL and mantle cell lymphoma as two different diseases, but we put 414 and 1114 and call it all multiple myeloma. And so that, that's one area we have to change. The whole idea of response-adapted therapy. Response is one of the best ways you can decide how to adjust your treatment. But for that, you need randomized controlled trials. We need surrogacy analysis to adopt minimal residual disease. So I think in the next several years, if we can use minimal residual disease detection, not just as a prognostic marker, but as a surrogate endpoint or as a uh, way to adjust therapy based on the correct type of trials, that would be an important thing to do. Um, I think we need to test the hypothesis that you don't need continuous therapy, that time, how would we know we are curing myeloma if everyone gets continuous therapy? So we need to do trials where you have a fixed duration of one or two years of therapy and you stop and you see if you're curing anybody. And you need to do those kind of trials. We need to um, look at uh, the, the, the whole question of smoldering multiple myeloma in terms of, I, I don't think it is an in-between stage between MGUS and myeloma. I think it is a stage where uh, some patients have myeloma, they don't yet have symptoms, and some patients are only like colon polyps, you know, benign pre-malignancy that do not need any treatment. And we are separating the two just based on clinical features, like two grams M spike, 20% plasma cells. And can we use genomics to really say who's malignant, who's not, so that we can employ treatments uh, more effectively. And then finally, despite all the advances, every day I hear about patients who blow through the treatments and now what, um, they have relapsed refractory disease and there are very few treatments available to them. And some of these patients are young, they've had only one or two years of therapy and here they are. Um, so we need to really continue to find new treatments, new approaches to really make a difference for these patients. And so a lot of areas where we have to improve before we can say, you know, we're there. Moving on from myeloma and back to the COVID world we're living in at the moment, and you're very active on Twitter with a large number of followers and clearly very passionate about many things, particularly at the moment with encouraging people to get vaccinated. Given the influence that you have with such a following, do you feel almost like a pressure to constantly share the data and highlight key information about the effectiveness of vaccines? Well, I think, I mean, I, for, for, for trainees, I would say um, academic medicine is complex. You have a lot of pressures to write, to publish your book chapters, you have uh, original research articles uh, to be successful but um, social media is equally important it has become equally important 
because we connect with people. We connect with people, we influence people. Um, you give a big lecture at ASH, you might reach 200 people. You can make the same message on Twitter and reach thousands. Um, so please use it effectively. And I think it's very, very useful and to get involved early to connect with people is very important. I, as far as COVID goes and, you know, my outreach in terms of like, you know, vaccination and masks, last year it was masks, you know, we, we, we got very involved with masks. You feel a pressure to tell people about what you think is important and reach people. But unfortunately, you know, 95% of people you reach are people who are already on your side. They already know that and they already believe in you. That's why they're following you. Reaching people who you cannot reach um, because they are the ones you need to convince requires a bigger stretch. And so the link is not direct. So when I say vaccines work, my audience is not just the people who follow you. They already believe in you. But your audience is people who might be reporters or politicians or people who have policy influences, who may get one small piece of nugget of information that changes their mind in terms of what they should write about or what they should advocate for. And hopefully they are the people who can reach um, all of those who are not yet convinced. Um, so that's the way you look at it. Um, as a good example, you know, I, um, my wife is an infectious disease specialist. She's the head of infection control for Mayo. So I have inside information into, you know, COVID and, and uh, what this virus is about and what works and what doesn't work. And last year, in, by the end of March of 2020, I was convinced, even though CDC and WHO wasn't, were not convinced, that, you know, everybody should be wearing masks, not just people who are sick. And that everyone wearing masks is is important to prevent spread, prevent transmission, to prevent everybody getting sick at the same time so that hospitals can uh, can have time to take care of people who are coming in with COVID. And we saw it in everywhere from Lombardy to New York. So we started, I started advocating for masks for all, like everybody should be wearing masks on Twitter um, and writing about it with, before the CDC or the WHO said that everyone should be wearing masks and that actually caught the attention of other people who felt the same way and a person um, who's a data scientist jeremy howard reached out to me and said hey i'm also interested in masks for all and here's another five or six other people who are interested in masks for all maybe we should write to policymakers and tell them that they should be mandating masks and we got you know Everyone from Nobel laureates to hundreds of academics who wrote, editors of big journals, um, Nature, the New England Journal, I mean, The Lancet, and, and wrote a letter to policymakers, leaders of companies, leaders of states, leaders of governments to say, like, you know, we think everyone should be wearing masks. And so, you know, it's not like you reach only the people you are who are following you, but you hope you reach other people and through them collectively you form a group. And the same thing with vaccines, we just hope that we reach. And we're doing it for the right reasons. You know, I don't have a book I'm writing or a <laughs> you know, mask I'm trying to sell or a vaccine or a drug company. This is something you believe in, so you say it. And as long as you're clear about that, it's easy to, to tell the right message and not have any other uh, goals or motives. And if someone like you engages that much and that publicly, um, I imagine you must feel some kind of anger or sometimes when you see stuff and then you try like to, to read about it and then correct it or uh, some kind of frustration you felt maybe last year, how things have done publicly or com even communicated publicly. Um, what do you think has been done wrong even by scientists maybe, or science advocates. Um, what has been done wrong? What, what did you frustrate the most in the last like one and a half years? Hard to say. I mean, there's certainly everyone's been frustrated. So, and many, many of us have been angry at moments uh, because of the lives lost. I mean, you see so many things going wrong. 
some of it is in our control and some of it, a lot of it was not in our control um, because it was the nature of the virus and it you know none of us were immune to it and so and it was able i think the main thing was um it took time to understand the proportion of patients who are asymptomatic and can still transmit that's i think the fundamental difference between SARS-CoV-2 and the first SARS virus is that a lot of people are asymptomatic and can transmit. And whereas with the original SARS, most people were became very, very ill, almost all. And so you could isolate them and prevent the transmission. But when you have a lot of people who are asymptomatic and transmitting, the only way to prevent the transmission then is like for everybody to isolate, uh, to, to wear masks and social distance. And that's the hardest thing behaviorally to, to change, right? Because the weakest link, one group of people doesn't wear a mask or is in close contact because that's the nature of their work. You know, they work in a, in a factory, the factories have to run. Then the transmission happens there then you know when people who are wearing masks and cases fall and they feel okay cases are low now we can take off our masks and then the whole thing comes back just went in waves and then the virus itself kept mutating and we had you know the alpha variant becoming several times more transmissible and several fold more serious than the original strain and then the delta variant comes and that's even more transmissible and more serious and, and so it some of these things were in our control some of these things were not and i don't know specifically uh, we can all look back and say what mistakes were made what mistakes could we have changed um, but i think overall given that this was a devastating virus devastating pandemic the fact that billion i think more than a billion people have been vaccinated within like a year and a half of the first diagnosis I mean, of, of the pandemic is a huge accomplishment for medicine. And maybe, so that's, that's the good thing. Maybe just a follow-up question to, to that, um, because we here in Germany, we had, we had the, really the luck. Um, we had the Professor Drosten, who is a real like SARS-CoV coronavirus expert in the field. And he created a podcast in February for the whole country where he described every every week uh, what is a coronavirus and interpreted the data, et cetera. And he and also uh, Dr. Fauci already said, um, yeah, we don't know yet about what the effect of masks can be. You know, that was their sci scientific like insecurity, which we all know that's that's normal. You're, you're never really sure about anything. Um, but now in Germany, and I saw that the same feeling in, in the US, that people like confront scientists, yeah, you said masks don't work, or you, you said that and that. Um, th that was maybe the question that, do, do you think we, we learned, scientists and science communicators really learned a hard lesson that putting something out there is especially in a pandemic is quite quite a big thing and has quite a big like impact on on the whole situation and it's it's bothered me a lot i mean we've thought about i've thought about it so much i've tweeted about it so much in terms of like see it it goes back to what we talked about type one and type two error is just being really aware which is the worst error to make and also what kind of evidence you want for any intervention so blindly saying i need randomized trials for everything it doesn't help anyone because there are things that you're willing to do which are simple enough that if you're wrong so what i mean hand washing or putting a hand sanitizer so for certain things there were it's it's um, culture um, you saw in in China, in Hong Kong, I wrote even about Hong Kong versus Singapore. Hong Kong was a country where they would wear masks at the sign of a cold. I mean, that was a pretty normal thing over the years before COVID came. So when COVID happened, everybody just went to masking. Singapore, 
early on was a place where people would wear masks only if they were not well. It was not something where you would wear a mask all the time. So early on in COVID, you had two Asian countries, Southeast Asian countries, one where like, you know, people were routinely masking, one had a culture of not masking till the government said, oh, wait a minute, everyone masks. And they took away that stigma. But in many countries from China, Hong Kong, and South Korea, because there was nothing, wearing a mask was not felt to be a great inconvenience. It was something that they were used to doing. So they went to early masks. I don't think that's the only thing that helped them, but also what helped was border control, where they decided that um, we have to first identify, isolate cases within the country, quarantine contacts. But then that works only if you cannot have new cases coming in. And so to have a system where um, you cannot enter the country from outside without quarantining and without testing. Um, so they employed both the, the, the universal mask approach, the, the test, isolate, contact, quarantine, contact trace and quarantine, as well as the border control so effectively. And because you need all of those layers to actually keep cases down. And so they, they have been able to keep cases down. Now, at the time, they didn't realize we will have a vaccine in a year, but now they look like they did the right thing because they held on to that strategy all this while until vaccines came and then they can vaccinate the whole population. So then they have lost the lowest number of people to COVID. Such a strategy is not possible um, if it's very, very hard to do a border control, like the United States with hundreds of places of entry. You can't possibly do that kind of thing. Europe, where there's free travel across countries, you couldn't do that. And then there's not been a culture of universal masking at the drop of a hat. So putting on a mask is a big thing. And that requires, for some people, it required some proof, including experts. If Dr. Fauci was going to say everyone wears a mask, he needed to know, hey, does this work? And so some of it, you know, in hindsight, you could say, but they said what they knew at the time was right. For everyone, it took a certain level of evidence to cross the threshold. Um, a background philosophy of how much mistakes I'm willing to to make if the intervention is mild enough. And those are the things that separated various countries, even within countries, various states and peoples. We've spoken about the, um, the fact that COVID can transmit through, um, is transmitted through asymptomatic people, along with the power and influence of social media. Obviously, there are benefits to that, but there are, it does come with significant downsides. And there's a significant number of people out there who are spreading sort of anti-vax type messages and all sorts of conspiracy theories. Um, given the increasing evidence and the increasing numbers of people on an international scale who are now vaccinated, what would you say to those people who are still, despite all of this, declining to get vaccinated? So, you know, you have to reach out to them. I, I, uh, I feel like that's a heterogeneous group. There are some people who have not been in favor of vaccines for everything. So they have generally not, they're difficult to reach because they've had a skepticism about vaccines throughout. Then there are a larger number of people who are concerned about the efficacy and safety of vaccines. And so they can be educated that the vaccines are indeed efficacious and safe, but it has that education cannot come from from us. It has to come from people they trust. So, um, you know, we believe people we trust. And so I, that's what we advocate for is like, if we can convince the people who can talk to them, who can reach out to them, then we can have an impact. If I tell them the vaccines are effective or safe, it, it won't have an impact because I don't have that trust with them. So the real goal of social media and advocacy is really to see if we can reach the people who can reach them, um, the people whom they trust. The news media that they trust has to be saying it. And I've said this 
you cannot say lukewarm oh yeah yeah wear a mask get a vaccine that's not going to help it has the people will believe you if the people say it with conviction and that's the kind of thing that i hope uh, leaders tv and news media people and whoever that can reach that constituency can say with conviction that this is something you guys should do because it helps against deaths it helps against hospitalizations it has lowers transmission rates keeps you from getting long covid and so on and 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 by and large it's humongously safe compared to the to the virus itself there's also a group of people who cannot get vaccines because of access they don't have vaccines in the country or they cannot go to a place and get vaccines or they're not reached by all of this media they're not on social media they're not on twitter they're too busy they've got really hardships for work so any number of reasons why they don't have the ability to get a vaccine and that we need to solve by getting to the root cause if it's purely not having vaccines in the country then all of us have to realize it's in our best interest to provide countries with vaccines with the technology to make vaccines so that everyone can be vaccinated because otherwise there will be a variant that arises which is resistant to this vaccine and then it defeats the whole thing that we've done and so that group has to be reached that way and so there's there's all these different groups of people who are not vaccinated there's the people who are not vaccinated because they're not eligible for a vaccine kids so that needs randomized trials data from randomized trials parents to know what the risks and benefits are before they'll um, have that vaccination take place so you know, i just looked at the us uh, yesterday just a rough math we have 335 million people of whom 215 million have had one dose of vaccine i think about 185 are fully vaccinated i feel like the people who've had one dose are easily reachable so that they can be fully vaccinated as well so 215 million leaves 120 million who are still not vaccinated. 50 million are not eligible because they're children. Then that leaves behind 70 million. Of the 70 million, you can say maybe half have already had COVID. So that puts my number to reach at 35 million. So it doesn't look that insurmountable as it initially looks. So you have to just keep at it and then identify of the 35 million, who's who? Like how many don't have access? How many are not yet convinced? How many are unreachable? How many have, and, and then reach them that way. What do you think, um, because you mentioned access and maybe uh, we can combine that be, because you also talked about the cost problem in general in medicine. Um, what do you think are the key next steps to first create better access for people in uh, South America, Africa? And secondly, how do we re reduce costs in our countries in the Western world, but even globally? Or is that like in intertwined, we need to reduce costs to create better access? What do you think are the key steps we need to take to, to improve both of these points? So as far as the COVID and the vaccine things goes, it's really dependent on all of the developed countries to come together and I won't say pressurize, really push pharma, particularly Moderna Pfizer in the direction that they really need to um, do something about access. Um, it's not possible to just donate somebody wrote an article you cannot donate your way out of this crisis you have to allow countries to manufacture their own vaccines and um, somehow solve that problem because that is one thing that affects all of us and it's in our best interest it's the right thing to do so we have to do that as far as prescription drugs in general cancer drugs in general and the cost issues it's really a very big problem. And I think for trainees, I would say, if you can read an article I wrote in Blood Cancer Journal, it's on um, prescription drug prices and how to make cancer drug prices more affordable. I've listed some of the steps that we need to take. Uh, I think the first and foremost is to recognize that these are monopolies, that in any monopoly, prices will be high and in any monopoly there has to be some regulation because you're giving monopoly protection to the company in return they have to give society back something so 
That is why all developed countries negotiate for prices of prescription drugs, which are new drugs, because they are telling the company, we are going to give you exclusivity for a number of years in return, because we are buying the drugs. We need to negotiate on a price that's fair, and the fair price is based on value-based pricing. Now, the outlier here is the US, where there is no value-based pricing, and pharma companies can set whatever price they want. And what I've written in that journal article is that unless the US moves to value-based pricing, where Medicare can negotiate for prices and where the US negotiates based on value, it puts all of the other countries at a disadvantage because they can walk away from Germany. How much drugs are you going to buy that they cannot just sell at a higher price in the US and make up for any lost revenue? So they, they, are will, they are able to walk away from many countries because uh, you are at a disadvantage from a negotiating standpoint. And so I really think the fundamental thing that, and there's momentum here, uh, most of the public is interested in value-based pricing and Medicare negotiation for prescription drugs. So if the US moves, that will be the first step. The second one is we have to make sure that um, Patent protections cannot be for as long as, a, as they have been. It's just such a long patent protection that prevents drugs from coming, new drugs becoming bio, uh, biosimilars or generics in a reasonable period of time. How many so years have, is, this? is this now? It varies now because it, you know, it really depends on the country. Lenalidomide is still not, you know, uh, generic here because you know you have the REMS program it's so we need patent protections to be you cannot indefinitely prolong patents by lawsuits and things so that's the other thing that we have to do um the uh, you know i that many countries have used something called compulsory licensing for life-saving drugs where if you're not able to arrive at a negotiated price in a reasonable time, then then you will then you will just go ahead and issue a license to a generic company to make the drug anyway. I, I, that has not been used widely. It's been used very very lim in a very limited manner. But I think if if we cannot solve this negotiation problem and the patent problem, then that's a tool that one has to really revisit. And, and say what kind of life-threatening condition would be be willing to employ that. And that's mainly for poorer countries, particularly in Africa and South America and uh, India and Asia, where compulsory licensing has been used to get HIV drugs, to get uh, you know some of the cancer drugs approved, but very sparingly. Um, and so you have to do that. Now, you know, India has a very unique situation. It's it's got a very big generic market that, and they have different rules for who can uh, have generic drugs and how quickly generic drugs can come. So if you took five years ago, there were only two countries where you could do all of the treatments I was saying was current treatment for myeloma. One would be the US and the other would be India. India because they had lenalidomide, palmolidomide, dirt cheap, $100 a month. And so whatever we said VRD, well, they could do VRD for very, very low cost, whereas none of the European countries could do it, none, China couldn't do it, you know, no other country could do what they could do, because that was because they had this process for how quickly somebody could make a generic drug. I'm not saying that's the solution, but you have to look at what various countries have used and come up with what works in Germany, what works in the UK, what works in Canada. Thinking about trainees who are working in these different healthcare systems and those that have spent time working in poorer countries, in rural areas. Now, you yourself are a passionate ambassador for doctors in the US or who are immigrants or from different backgrounds. Looking back at your own way from India to the US, what would you have wished to have and what do you think should be done for trainees working in more rural areas or those in lower middle income countries that don't necessarily have access 
to some of these treatments that we've been talking about and to education opportunities? So, um, thankfully, um, with the exception of the biologic like daratumumab and uh, some of the immunotherapeutic approaches, a lot of the other treatments um, can be used rationally without and, and get almost the same level of survival as we do in uh, countries where drugs are available. So I would say um, try and use what you have the best way possible. And so if it means using bortezomib cyclodex for initial therapy, so be it. Um, that's not the end of the world. And that could give your patient almost the same survival. So really getting into details about that, doing studies, and I've encouraged people to do studies in their own countries for alternative treatment strategies that could work. Um, again, a paper that I wrote with Jean-Luc Harusso, who by the way, had used to lead the health authorities of France, so he would be the person negotiating for prices of all prescription drugs. And so he's also a myeloma physician, so I wrote this paper with him on, you know, is there a, uh, a more cost-effective way of approaching myeloma that could give similar outcomes with lower cost, where you could talk about, you know, using um, li more limited duration of maintenance and things like that. Uh, you know, I would say that opportunities right now, wherever, whichever country you are in, um, is, is really, you know, we talked about it at the very, very beginning. It's the best time, you know, you could do really good work wherever you are and really help patients wherever you are. Um, and just, uh, you know, you don't need to always think that this is not available to me therefore my patient's not going to get the best care um, if, if daratumumab is not available today it will be available four years from now so if you can use the best available therapy for the next four years at that time you will have access to the drug and i've always said i really don't think using daratumumab first and then lenalidomide and then pomalidomide and then cartilzomib uh, the sequence matters as much as using all the available therapies at some point in time. So if you reverse the order and use what we use later early on, because that's what's mm -hmm. available right now, and then come to DARA three, four years from now when it's available, that's, you, you could end up with almost the same survival. Um, I think a lot of patient care is more dependent on knowing what the patient has, um, trying to give, give the best possible therapy to that patient, deciding when to treat, when not to treat, and identifying the complication quickly, rather than exactly which regimen you use. That's not the big determinant in outcome. And at the end, um, you beautifully said, it's, it's always good to, to uh, learn about history. And um, when you look back to your history, you, you came from India and then went to the US. What, you, what would you say were the key uh, learning points, the key experiences for you to make that step even? And then starting out in the US for people who might like think about it. everybody in science who is not in the US gets always confronted with, okay, you maybe you go to the US for scientific training, lab training, etc. What, what in, in reflection of it, what would you say were the key points for you, key experiences, or maybe you wish you wouldn't have done, you wouldn't have felt? Um, yeah. So, you know, we are all very fortunate to be doctors because we get almost immediate satisfaction every time you take care of a patient and the patient feels better. You know, you get reward like very few occupations do. So if you really want to deliver good patient care, it doesn't matter which country or in your own country, you deliver patients, you get the same joy, you get a lot of, um, you, you do good, you feel joy about doing good. So going to another country to accomplish that is not really necessary. Why I came here was that 
I was really, really interested in research and becoming a scholar, you know, an academic. And there was not even a formal hematology training program in India. And I was really wanting to be a hematologist. And I knew that. I mean, and I really wanted to come to the US to become a hematologist when I came in for residency. And then, you know, when you're here, paths change. Research, on the other hand, is a very delayed satisfaction, unlike patient care. You could spend 20 years in research, and at the end of it, you haven't still found the next new drug or the next new regimen. Uh, so the reward comes very, very late, and you have to be willing for that sacrifice that you may or may not get where you want to be. You may end up in like no man's land. You may do all of the work, train, and then go back and just do private practice or whatever. So the move from India to the US, I had a clear vision in mind that I wanted to be a hematologist. I, I wanted to do research, you come here. And you then realize that it's only a small number of people who can be successful uh, in that field. When I came to Mayo for training in Hemong, if you look up at the publications I did between 95 and 99 in that period, like roughly 50% were on gliomas and glioblastomas and brain tumors, and 50% were in myeloma. I, have was re I had written clinical trials, doing clinical trials in brain tumors. And yeah, I mean, I had the choice, I, should I go into brain tumors or multiple myeloma? And I just picked myeloma um, at that time, not knowing that all of these things would happen. And I was recruited, I think even before we knew thalidomide work. And yeah, if I had gone into brain tumors and, and worked on gliomas, I could be sitting 30 years from now, still trying to find the next drug that will replace, say, you know, uh, CCNU or uh, radiation or something like that, because it, it was luck of the draw in that sense. So you go in with the with the right intent and then let the chips fall where they may be, you know, and do it. It is a hard road coming to a foreign country and trying to get established and, you know, because you, uh, I had my, um, uh, my, colleague, Dr. Rafael Fonseca, who's, uh, you know, at Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, he was one year ahead of me. And so I had like a, a colleague who was also a mentor right there. And we knew early on that in order to be successful in a different country um, in, and overcome all of the other barriers, you know, from immigration to everything else, you need to be way above everyone else, which means you have to work there's no, it's not way about in intelligence or anything. It's way about in hard work. But medicine is all hard work. All of us know what we need to do, but it's about hard work. In the, and, and hard work for me was like write as many papers as possible, write, do as many research projects as possible, really work nights and weekends to publish, 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 so that you can get the opportunities. The other advice I would give is the grant funding. You cannot do uh, be successful in academia without having a lot of protected time and protected time comes with research funding. Research funding means becoming really good at writing grants and you become really good at writing grants by writing papers and unless you have a lot of papers they don't want to give you money so it's all mm -hmm. like interconnected and so a lot of investment goes early on without knowing what to expect and willing to take a risk. Even now I tell people who do clinical trials with me, I talked about, you know, how hard it is to do a trial. If you want to do an investigator initiated trial where you are trying to get the funding from someone and you have got an idea that you want to make a reality, it's a long road. And after two years, you might end up with, well, either the trial was not funded or somebody didn't like the idea and they changed it completely or the review panel just took 10 minutes to tell that the trial you wrote for two years is not really good enough. Mm -hmm. It happens even now. Well, um, with that, is that a positive end? I hope so. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I, think, I think we need to end on a more positive note. What I mean to say is you have to have the right motivation 
for whatever you want to do. And I think uh, some of the things that most of us are going to end up with careers uh, where patient care is the foremost thing that we do and we do a little bit of research. So I think it's better to focus on that. I tell all my residents and trainees when I first do any rotation, please know your patient. I don't care how much detail you write in your notes. I don't really care like, you know, how scholarly you are with all these things, but I really want you to know what is going on with the patient. Why are they in the hospital? Why are they not well? How can we get them better? Have empathy, develop acumen, which means like really knowing how to find out what's wrong with the patient with the least amount of tests and the least amount of invasive procedures and knowing what's wrong. And then have a deep knowledge base to know what the right thing to do is or know where to look for that knowledge and really patient care front and center. And if you're not a good physician, a good doctor, it's very, very hard to do all these other things. So I think focus on that. And if you are interested in research, be prepared that it's going to be a lot of hard work, um, a lot of hard work and the reward won't come immediately. It may come many years later, but you just go in with the with whatever happens, I will give it my best. I think that's a beautiful ending. <laughs> <laughs> You cut the corner beautifully. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank really, you. really appreciate it, uh, uh, especially on, on a Sunday. Um, I don't know whether you might have breakfast now or go to go to bed or start uh, <laughs> publishing a paper. I don't know. Um, but we really thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nico. Thanks, Claire. Thanks for having me. <laughs>